Good morning. You can turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Acts in chapter 27. And as you're turning to Acts chapter 27, I want to encourage you that the Lord's promises are sure. Amen? Now, I might say that a few times this morning as I'm preaching and as we're sharing in the Word. So I'm going to give you a little coaching. Not that you have to do this, but if I happen to say something that you just want to say amen to, like, the Lord's promises are sure, that's kind of what I'm looking for. Okay, so if you're not a Pentecostal, that's fine. We'll, We'll teach you along the way. But one of the things you might want to get into the habit of doing, and this isn't for me, and this isn't even for you, as much as it is to let God know that we actually believe that the Lord's promises are sure. Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that the word teaches us of your great love. Lord, that it teaches us the truth about our world and about our hearts and how our hearts desperately need you, how our hearts are deceitfully wicked, but that you know our hearts and that you show us our hearts that we might surrender those hearts to you. So this morning, as we study in your word, may we come away knowing the truth about your love for us and your word, and may it be put into our hearts by the power of the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So this morning, as we're in Acts chapter 27, much of this chapter really reads like a narrative or an account, so I'm going to be reading larger portions of it and then commenting But as we get into it, the point of what we really, really want to understand is that when God says something is going to happen, it happens. It's so hard for us to believe this at times, but when God says something is going to happen, it will come to pass. Now, what I want you to understand, what I want you to know in your hearts, is that God is as faithful today as he's always been. And there's simply no reason for you and I, for us, to doubt the faithfulness of God. Paul was in a situation where it would have been very easy for him to doubt God's promises. I'm going to give you a little recap, because you see the authorities at Caesarea had finally arranged for Paul to travel to Rome. God had said, and he had appeared in a vision to Paul, and he had made it abundantly clear that Paul was, in fact, going to Rome. All of the accounts of this chapter would say otherwise. Everything we're going to study today would suggest that God's promises are not sure. Everything that Paul is about to experience, Paul and his traveling companions, as they experience these things, if we were watching this in real time, each and every one of us would come to the conclusion that God's promises cannot be counted on, that God is not faithful. But in fact, he is. And so what I want you to do is pretend for a minute you don't know how this is going to end. Pretend for a minute that all you have is a promise from God, and all that Paul's promise is is that he's going to go to Rome. So as we go through this, keep that in mind that it's easy for us to look back retrospectively and say, well, of course, we know Paul went to Rome. But in the moment, it didn't seem that way. So as Paul is 
about to travel to Rome, we know that Governor Festus had asked Paul if he would agree to be transferred to Jerusalem to be tried there, and that was a death sentence. If Paul had gone back to Jerusalem, he would have been assassinated on the way. This is true. And so Paul had refused to be transferred to Jerusalem. He made a formal formal appeal to Caesar. And as a Roman citizen, this was his right under Roman law. And so Governor Festus had adjourned Paul's trial, granted the appeal to Caesar. In fact, we saw last week together in the previous chapter, chapter 26, that King Agrippa II had requested an opportunity to hear Paul's case for himself. And after hearing the case, King Agrippa concluded that Paul was innocent and should have been set free. But because he had made an appeal, the process required Paul to go where God had called him to go, to Rome. So Paul's appeal to Caesar prevented him, actually, from being released until he appeared before Caesar in Rome. And so we read in verses 1 through 3 of chapter 27 that when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, Paul and some other prisoners were handed over to a centurion named Julius, who belonged to the Imperial Regiment. We boarded a ship from Adramidium, about to sail for ports along the coast of the province of Asia, and we put out to sea. Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica, was with us. Very simple narrative, but it tells us that Paul is on his way to Rome. And you might think, well, that's that. Well, it's not just that, as we'll see. There were many obstacles and many challenges and many trials and many opportunities to doubt God's promises along the way. But I think if one thing can be said in our lives, when we come to the end of our lives, each and every one of us should be able to look back and say, things weren't always easy. In fact, sometimes things were hard, but God's promises were always sure. So Paul He was placed in the protective custody of a centurion named Julius. Now, Paul wasn't the only prisoner from Palestine making his appeal to Caesar in Rome. So the centurion is responsible to bring these individuals to Rome so that the justice system can be implemented in a way that's fair and just. And so Julius was charged with getting Paul and the other prisoners safely there. By the way, this Julius was a decorated centurion. Because he was a member of the Imperial Regiment, we're told. And you might be thinking, oh, that's interesting. But this was actually an honorary title for valor in service to Caesar. So if you're from the military or you're in the military or you served in the military, you know that many times you receive awards or or recognition and the word valor is employed. It's one of the highest forms of honor that you can receive. Sometimes in certain insignia, you'll see a little V. It means that you've been awarded a a recognition for valor. And that was the case for Julius. Now, a centurion was a professional officer of the Roman army, commanded about 80 to 100 men. So if you do have a military background, they'll be like a captain in the army uh, or the Marines. And so that's exactly what this man was responsible for. These centurions often suffered heavy casualties in battle. They fought right alongside their legionnaires. So brave men, and this man in particular, honored for valor. By the way, a little note, trivia, if you will. Every centurion mentioned in the New Testament is mentioned with honor. Every single one of them. And I think that just shows us that they were men of honor. 
And in order to have that position, you had to be a man of honor. So, Julius booked passage for the entire group on a ship sailing along the south coast of Asia Minor. This ship will not take them to Rome. This is a transport ship that just is a, sort of a local, if you will, if you're familiar with local and express. This is a local. It's just going to bring them along the coast of Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. Uh, this ship had sailed to Caesarea from Adramidium, which was a seaport in Mysia in Asia Minor. So it's, it kind of does a circuit. And they took the opportunity to get closer to where they might be able to find a ship, a larger ship, to bring them all the way to Italy and, of course, to Rome. So... Paul was joined, we are told, by Luke and Aristarchus. Actually, the reason we know Luke was with him is Luke is the author of the book of Acts. He's also the uh, author of the Gospel of Luke. But he's the author of the book of Acts, and when he says later on, uh, it says, well, actually, it opens up by saying when it was decided that we would sail for Italy, we know, therefore, that Luke was with him. Luke was a physician who traveled with Paul. He had attended to his medical needs, and Paul had many medical needs most of which were because he received many, many beatings. He was oftentimes abused by the authorities and others, and so the the man needed a doctor on staff. And so oftentimes Luke was able to minister in that way, but he was also a missionary and a close friend to Paul. He pretty much at a certain point never left Paul's side. As far as we know, Luke stayed with uh, Paul on the third missionary journey all the way to Rome and throughout the rest of his life according to Paul's writings. Now, he's best known again for writing this book, so he lets us know he's there. And then we're told Aristarchus was there. Now, he was from Thessalonica in Macedonia. That's northern Greece. We've read a lot about him before. We've talked about him before. And I'll just mention that he had traveled with Paul through Macedonia years earlier, like about 10 years earlier. And then he joined Paul for his entire third missionary journey. So Luke and Aristarchus have been with Paul for a while now. There were others but I'm sure he wasn't able to take a whole lot of people with him. After all, Rome was fitting the... Uh, they were uh, uh, taking care of the, the expenses. They were, they were footing the bill. So he was allowed to, and he took them with him. And they went along to be there for Paul. And so that's what we're told here. Also, we do know that Paul, everywhere he went, seemed to have really great relationships with people. You know, one of the things, we were just talking about this with some friends on Friday evening. We were out to celebrate one of our friend's birthdays. And I will say that we, we were talking about uh, relationships and that there are transactional relationships, but that relationships that are transactional sort of end the moment the transaction's complete. So let's say you hire a roofer. The roofer comes to your house. You might even invite him for dinner. He spends some time with you, but at the end of the day, when the roof is finished, the transaction's over, you pay the bill, and the relationship, for the most part, is probably over, at least at that point. But when a relationship, even if it's a commercial relationship or a business relationship, or a professional relationship, if it goes a little bit further and you really connect with that person, then it goes from being transactional to relational. From transactional to relational. Now, the reason I say that is because as we were talking about this, relational relationships oftentimes are not based on how much money is spent or even if money is exchanged. It's based on a rapport. It's based on a relationship that's developed through care 
and through sharing your heart. We should, in every instance, and I mean every instance, with all people, be trying our best to establish these relational contacts. It shouldn't just be transactional. Whether you're buying a car or a home or in a professional relationship at work, you do realize that as a Christian, you have an opportunity to build a relationship, and through relationship, people hear the gospel. Amen? Transactional contacts or transactional relationships begin and end and are usually based on money or services. But these types of relationships can last your entire life and will be a great blessing to you as you're a blessing to them. But probably most importantly, they are the foundation for sharing the gospel. Okay, that's your little take-home. You can take that little container they give you at the, re- at the restaurant and put that in there for later. Now, having said that, we see in verse 3, it says, The next day we landed at Sidon. Of course, Luke is narrating this. And Julius, in kindness to Paul, allowed him to go to his friends so they might provide for his needs. There's two elements there of this relational contact that we want to talk about. First is this battle-hardened centurion, honorable centurion, honored for valor, showed kindness to Paul. And that shows us that in the brief time that Paul had sailing with this man, he had already established that kind of relationship where he felt comfortable allowing Paul, for Paul was in no danger at this point, to to be on his own and, and, and to just go and meet with his friends. That is not the way Roman centurions usually behave. Remember, Paul is technically in protective custody. So why did that happen? Because Paul built relationships with people. In fact, that's further strengthened, that truth is further revealed, because when he was inside, where did he go? To meet with others that he had built relationships with. So you'll hear me say that a lot, but life is all about relationships. And if you're not building them, if you're not maintaining them, if you're not investing in them, one could easily say you're not even living because life is all about them. Okay, we've made that point. What I do find here very interesting is that Sidon was an older Phoenician city, about 20 miles north of Tyre on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. So they're on their way. They're significantly far enough away from the area where the conflict took place with Paul that Paul's not in danger of being assassinated. And Julius has already assessed that Paul's not going anywhere. But he kindly allowed Paul the freedom to visit his friends. And why? That they might provide for his journey. If you were taken into custody and, and, and your trip to Rome was being paid for by Rome, you were probably traveling econo. We all understand that, right? Anyone here ever been upgraded to first class? I'm way too cheap to pay for that ticket, I'll be honest. But one time, it only happened one time on a missions trip with, with Pastor Joe, Uh, I was told that I was moving up to first class. That will ruin you for life. (laughs) I can't even tell you the difference between first class and regular class. I became a snob in about 3.5 seconds. (laughs) You know, I'm like, could you please let the peasants in the back of the plane know? (laughs) To keep it down, I'm trying to rest. And, And bring me the hot towel, please. 
I'm kidding, but you know what? It, it really is very easy to, to get used to that kind of treatment, right? You, you know. And if you've traveled first class and you're paid for it, why? I don't know. But anyway, so I got upgraded for free, and I realized right away that I could get used to that kind of thing. Well, here's the thing. Paul's traveling a cono, okay? So he's going to go to Sidon, and they're going to help him out a little bit. You know, some of the creature comforts, his needs, it could have been finances, but more than likely, it was just his basic needs. Maybe a blanket. Maybe a coat. Maybe some extra food. Whatever it was, he needed, needed some things, and Julius realized, what's the harm? He's a good guy. Let him go to his friends, and so he was able to receive help. And I think it just shows, again, the heart of Paul. And I didn't want to just go over that without making that point. It, it really doesn't seem like much, but it impresses me that Paul was able to befriend Julius, a Roman soldier, a pagan, Okay, so not a man of, of spiritual background necessarily, but he also gained his trust. He gained his trust. Have you ever gained the trust of somebody outside the church? There are people that I know that, that trust me and I love them and they don't know Christ yet. I say yet because we're praying for them. But there's a relationship that's based on trust. You can actually have a relationship like that with those that don't know Christ. In fact, you'd hope it would lead to one, right? So I think I'm impressed by that. But this was probably the last time that Paul would ever see these friends in Sidon again. And Paul would have missed this wonderful opportunity had he not befriended Julius. So you think about that. Okay. So Paul, Luke, and Aristarchus, they sail from Sidon to Myra and Lycia. And I'm going to mention these things briefly. But in verses 4 through 6, we read that from there we put out to sea again and passed to the lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. And when we had sailed across the open sea off the coast of Cilicia, by the way, that's where Paul is from, Cilicia, and Pamphylia, we landed at Myra in Lycia. And there the centurion found an Alexandrian ship, which was a much larger sailing vessel, sailing for Italy and put us on board. And so it's kind of interesting. The centurion is sort of administratively responsible to get all of these people to Rome. It's an important responsibility. Paul and his friends are among those that Julius is responsible for. Well, some things happened along the way, and you might be tempted to think, well, things are really working against them. I mean, now the wind is against them. I mean, we like it. We like to say the wind is at our backs, right? That's a phrase we use. That's what we say when we mean things are really working for us. Oh, the wind was at my back. Like, so if you're running a race and a gust of wind is at your back, you're going to run a little faster. If it's against you, you're going to run a little slower. So the wind was against them. And it prevented them from landing at Cyprus, which was a much better place to land. But it forced them to sail across the open sea to Mara. And it was very... uh, dangerous to sail in the open sea, especially in a, in a smaller vessel, which they're still on at this point. So Cyprus was a beautiful island, it still is, off the coast of Israel in the Mediterranean Sea. Cilicia, we've talked about before, a maritime province in Southeast Asia Minor, or modern-day Turkey. Uh, by the way, if you want to know where these uh, ports of call are, you can look in the back of most of your Bibles, and you'll find a colored map, most likely, showing you Paul's journey. Uh, but there was also Pamphylia, uh, Paul had visited there, uh, was a province in Asia Minor, bordered on the east by Cilicia, where again Paul is from. Myra, which is mentioned, is an important town in Lycia on the south coast of Asia Minor. So they're sailing the southern coast of Turkey. That gives you that idea. And they end up in Lycia. It's a mountainous region. It's bordered by these other areas. 
they're thinking, okay, so far so good. It wasn't the plan, but so far so good. Well, Julius realized now that he needed to get a larger ship to get all the way to, to, to Rome. They're certainly not going to be able to take the smaller vessel that they've been on. So he booked passage for the entire group on this ship sailing across the Mediterranean Sea to Italy. We know that the ship had taken uh, or sailed to Merop, taking cargo from Alexandria in Egypt. If you're familiar with Egypt, Alexandria is a very large city, and especially at that time, I think it might have been the second or third largest city in the Roman Empire. Well, this was likely a much larger ship, carrying cargo, grain, and many passengers. So now they're on their way to Rome, just like God said. And you might be thinking, well, that's good. God said they would go to Rome, and eh, they've had a few obstacles, but things seem to be working in their favor. You would be premature to say that. So, we then go on to learn in verses 7 through 12, it tells us we made slow headway for many days and had difficulty arriving off Sinaitis. And when the wind did not allow us to hold our course, we sailed to the Lee of Crete, opposite Salmone. We moved along the coast with difficulty and came to a place called Fair Havens near the town of Lassia. Much time had been lost. And sailing had already become dangerous because by now it was after the fast, or Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. We all know what happens after September in the areas around the ocean and the seas, and especially the Mediterranean Sea. It's hurricane season. So it was dangerous. Paul warned them. Men, he said, I can see that our voyage is going to be disastrous and bring great loss to ship and cargo. And to our own lives also. But the centurion, that is Julius, instead of listening to what Paul said, followed the advice of the pilot and of the other, uh, excuse me, of the owner of the ship. And since the harbor was unsuitable in winter, that is, it wasn't a very large harbor, uh, since the harbor was unsuitable to winter in, the majority decided that we should sail on hoping to reach Phoenix and winter there. And this was a harbor in Crete facing both southwest and northwest. That means it was that much closer to where they wanted to go. So far, things are starting to look a little bit more challenging. The wind has picked up, it's blowing them off course, and it is slowing them down. Have you ever felt like that? You know, you're on your destination, you're going to a place, you know where you want to go. Now you've found the means to get there, but Everything seems to be working against you. You, you, God told you this was going to happen, this would work out, but now you're facing challenges. The wind is against you. It's slowing you down. You're off course, and you're thinking, did I hear God right? Am I the only one that's ever felt this way? God gives you a promise, but we know that God's promises are sure. You see, you forgot already. God's promises are sure. And you begin to doubt the promises of God. You begin to think, you know, maybe I didn't hear God right. Or you begin to think, maybe, just maybe, God didn't say that. Or God can't be trusted and relied upon. We all feel this way at times, and it's when the trials come and the tribulations come that we begin to wonder these things. Could it be true? Could God have forsaken me? I'm sure we've all felt like that at times. But what we do know is while the wind prevented them from staying on course and forced them to sail to the southern coast of Crete, they were right on course. 
for where God had called them to be. And sometimes God calls us into difficult circumstances and to trials and things that that we think might destroy us. Paul certainly thought so. He thought the trip would be disastrous. And indeed, it was to a degree. Now, speaking about the direction they were going in, we talked about Snidus. That's a peninsula on the extreme southwest of Asia Minor or Turkey. And, of course, Crete, if you're familiar with the Mediterranean Sea, it's the largest and most fertile island in the Aegean Sea. So not the worst thing that could have happened for them to make their way to Crete. But that wasn't really where they wanted to go. They were hoping to go to Italy and to get there as soon as possible. So Salmanes mentioned it's just a rocky point on the eastern end of the island of Crete. They're thinking, we're almost there. We can can beat the wind. We can beat hurricane season. We can get there. We'll see that they weren't going to get there. So they end up in Fairhaven. It's a beautiful harbor about five miles west of the town of Lassie on the southern coast of Crete. And if they had just stayed there, things would have went well. But here's the problem. It's not a very large city or place to spend three months of winter in. It's not suitable. What does that mean? They didn't have the amenities. It wasn't the most comfortable place to be. And these are sailors. And we'll see in a bit, there's almost 300 men on this ship. They wanted a much better place to spend three months of their lives in. And sometimes when we look for comfort, when we look for the niceties of life, We put ourselves in danger, and we end up experiencing hardships that we wouldn't have otherwise. But Paul is not in control. He gives good advice, but you have to listen to good advice, right? And they didn't, as we'll see. So, Paul warned Julius and the sailors, don't do it. Don't sail out into the open sea this late in the season. He was aware that they were way behind schedule and severely off course. And what is it about men that they never seem to want to stop for directions? or listen to any advice while they're driving. Oh, no, that's, that's, that's not, men aren't like that. Of course, thank God for navigation. It saved many a marital fight. But the navigation told me what to do, you know. So he was also aware that they were now traveling during this hurricane season, forced to land on the south shore of Crete in the middle of the open sea. As we've said, it's inadvisable to sail at this time of year. Well, he was an experienced traveler. Paul knew. He had been actually shipwrecked three times already. So I think he knew what he was talking about, according to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. And he predicted, and this was a man that predicted things quite often, he predicted that their voyage would surely end in disaster. They would suffer the loss of their ship and their cargo, and they would endanger everyone's lives by sailing for Rome so late in the year. Well, what did Julius do? Nice guy, but he didn't listen. He chose to ignore Paul's warning, and instead he listened to sailors. Now listen, not to disparage sailors, but you got to be careful when you listen to sailors. People who become sailors, and I'm not talking about people who join the Navy. I'm talking about people who go out on the open sea and sail are a different breed. Would you agree with that statement? Even people who go out of Belmar and go fishing, they're they're a different breed. Maybe some of you guys have been out there. It it takes a different kind of person to spend your time out there on the open sea. And if you're a sailor, if you like being out there sailing, I enjoy being on the water. I wouldn't describe myself as a sailor. You know that it just takes a little bit of a different kind of person. They are more adventurous than the average person. They take more risks than the average person. Would you agree? Say amen. They're not afraid of things like hurricanes the way we are. That is, those of us who are not sailors. 
So Julius took the advice of what you might consider be, to be those people who do those sort of extreme sports. Have you ever seen anything on TV or maybe you've, you've had the chance to witness this? The people that do extreme sports, they're missing a, a particular gene, I think, in their DNA, which says, are you out of your mind? Some of the things these people do, and they're very good at it, it freaks me out. To, You're doing what? The worst by far I've seen thus far is when these guys jump off a mountain in a cat suit, a flying squirrel outfit. I forget what they call this. I don't even know what you call it. I'll call it crazy. Let's call it that. They jump off, and it's like a parachute. It's kind of like you're a human drone. You jump off, and you sail around like, and they go really close to the cliffs and everything. Me, I would be just happy to hit the ground lightly, but these guys, and I don't know, and then I think at some point they pull a parachute, but it's some kind of parachuting. I saw it and I thought to myself, this is crazy, these people are going to get killed. And a few weeks later, the guy that sort of invented this, the best in the world, was killed. So, if the best in the world can get in a flying squirrel costume, I'm going to call it that, and jump off a mountain and get killed... Guess what I'm not doing this summer? Okay, the point is, sailors are different people. They will take risks that you and I would never take. So, they listened to the sailor's advice. The pilot believed it would be better to take a chance and set sail while they still could. It's a gamble. The owner of the ship had a significant financial interest in arriving in Italy as soon as possible. Get there quicker, get your money quicker, right? And the majority of the others agreed, and their reason for agreeing is they didn't want us, they, they wanted to travel to a more comfortable harbor. So the flesh is sort of driving this decision, and Paul speaks from a position of spiritual wisdom and understanding and experience, and says, we shouldn't do it, guys, and nobody listens. But that's okay, he's about to get even. He's a great, I told you so. So the majority of the others agreed, and so the harbor was unsuitable, and they all hoped to sail to Phoenix. So let's go to Phoenix. Not Phoenix, Arizona. Phoenix, which is a more sheltered harbor on the south shore of Crete. That's the hope. Well, let's at least get as far as Phoenix. And I don't need to tell you what they were looking for. They were looking for bars, entertainment. You know, sailors have a tendency to like that kind of thing. So they're thinking, let's get to Phoenix. Let's just get to Phoenix. Well, it's not going to work out for them. They all get caught in a storm. I mean, you can see it coming. Paul certainly did. And if you've read the book of Acts, you know what happens. They get caught in a storm that they didn't need to get caught in. And you can't blame Paul and his traveling companions. They don't have any say, but they get caught in a storm. Have you ever been caught in a storm because you did something foolish? Or someone else did something foolish that caused you to get caught in a storm? When that happens, you can start to think, well, that's it. God's promises are not going to be sure in my life. We made a mistake. We did something wrong. And when you do something wrong, God punishes you. Or at least that's the way I used to think. You know what I found? That when you do something wrong, God's grace is sufficient in all things. That's when God does his best work, when you mess up. Pastor Tim, are you suggesting that we can mess up and God still loves us and blesses us anyway? Yes, that's exactly what I'm saying. And if that weren't true, I wouldn't be here. And I have to say, it's not Paul's fault, but if they all drowned in the sea, every one of us would be saying, well, they should have listened to Paul. See, that's what happens when people don't listen to wisdom. But wait a minute. 
The Lord's promises are sure. So, let's read verses 13 through 20. Now, this will go rather quickly. When a gentle south wind began to blow, they thought that they had obtained what they wanted. Ah, see, we were right, you know. So they weighed anchor and sailed along the shore of Crete, and before very long, a wind of hurricane force called the Northeaster, we call them Nor'easters here, but the Northeaster swept down from the island, and the ship was caught by the storm and could not head into the wind. So we gave way to it and were driven along. As we passed to the lee of a small island called Cauda, we were hardly able to make the lifeboat secure. And when the men had hoisted it aboard, they passed ropes under the ship itself to hold it together. Fearing that they would run aground on the sandbars of Syrtis, they lowered the sea anchor and let the ship be driven along. We took such a violent battering from the storm that the next day they began to throw the cargo overboard. On the third day, they drew the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. And when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and the storm continued raging, we finally gave up all hope of being saved. Now, this is Luke writing. We gave up hope collectively as a group of people. We're going to die. That's, 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 that's where they're at. Now, the difference is that Paul had received this promise, but these other guys are starting to think this is it. We're done. We're done. The fact that they sailed out into the open sea in spite of Paul's warning doesn't surprise me. I see people do this all the time. I tell people all the time, you might want to think twice before doing that, and they do it anyway. In fact, sometimes they they do it in such a way you think all your warning did was make them want to do it more. What is it about us? They were lulled into a false sense of security just long enough to become vulnerable. And that so often happens. They were no longer in control of the direction that they were going in. The wind was driving them along. They were insecure. They couldn't hold it together. They had to actually put ropes around the boat to hold it all together. You ever felt like that? You ever felt like life is just out of control? You just can't even hold it all together? I'm sure you have. I think recently we've all felt like that. They go past this small island called Cauda. It's on the southern coast of Crete, so they kind of know where they are. Then they're worried about hitting the sandbars of Syrtis. So they know where they are, kind of know where they are, because the sandbars of Syrtis are very shallow waters located in the Libyan Sea between Carthage and Cyrenesia. So it's kind of closer to the African coast. They're being blown all over the Mediterranean. That's the point. They were so battered that their possessions meant absolutely nothing to them. Have you noticed that when things get out of control and you're dealing with a sickness or a tragedy or life problems, you realize how all of a sudden your big screen TV means nothing? That if someone said, throw it against the wall and all these problems will go away, you'd do it in a heartbeat? It's, it's amazing how God will use trials to detach us from material objects. I hate to say this, but if you're really attached to your things, the best thing God could do for you is bring some kind of trial in your life so you don't love those things so much. And if you'd like to avoid trials, one of the ways you might avoid trials, and of course it's up to God's will, is not get so attached to the things in this life. Amen? Well, that's what happened here. They were so desperate, they abandoned their own means and methods of self-direction. They took the tackle. That's the stuff that you actually sail with. And because it had some weight to it, they threw it overboard. That's like saying, oh, well, 
It's like that moment in one of my absolute favorite movies, Castaway, where Tom Hanks is on the raft and he's done everything to survive for four years. And he takes this moment and he just realized Wilson's gone. Who didn't cry for Wilson? It's a great movie when you cry for a a ball. And he just takes the oars and he throws them into the water. Sort of ceremoniously saying, I'm done. I finally give up. I give up trying to steer my own life and make it happen. I mean, the guy was just, I mean, what a survivor. The very meaning of the word survivor. And he finally reached a point where he threw it all away and just said, wherever I go, I go. You know, that's the very place that God is trying to get each and every one of us to. Where you take the means of your own direction and you throw it overboard and you say, Lord, direct me. Lord, lead me. Lord, instruct me. Lord, show me where you want me to go. I'm done rowing my way through life. I'm done trying to figure it all out myself. It would be a lot easier if I just surrendered my life to you. Amen? You can see God doing a work among these sailors. You can see God doing a work on this ship. They were so lost. How do I know they were lost? When sailors don't have the sun or the stars, they have no idea where they are or where they're going. And we're told specifically there were no sun and stars for days. They gave up all hope of survival because when a sailor doesn't have a way to steer or navigate, they know they're done for, or at least they feel that way. So what does Paul do? Now, this is the moment I love. I just love this moment. Look at verses 21 through 26. After the men had gone a long time without food. I don't need to tell you why that is, right? You don't exactly... Has anybody ever been out on a fishing vessel? Did you feel like eating? No, it's kind of the reverse of eating. It's the... Yeah, I don't need to go there, right? Okay, so we're told that after the men had gone a long time without food, Paul stood up before them and said, Men, (laughs) you should have taken my advice not to sail from Crete. Oh, don't you love it? I told you so. Then you, would not have, uh, then you would have spared yourselves this damage and loss. I couldn't have resisted either if I was Paul. But now I urge you to keep up your courage. Keep your courage up. Because not one of you will be lost. Only the ship will be destroyed. Last night, an angel of the God whose I am and whom I serve stood beside me and said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar. I love must. I love when God said this must happen. Because when God says this must happen, it will happen because God's promises are sure. God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. Do you understand that God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail through this life with you? That is, you and I, we have an opportunity to reach them with the truth. Now, they have to make their own decisions, and they can choose the wrong thing, but God has graciously given you the lives of all sailing with you, those in your household, those in your family, those at your job, those at your school, those in your neighborhood, those that are sailing along with you have an opportunity because you're with them to know the truth and find Jesus. God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. So keep up your courage, men, for I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told me. 
Nevertheless, we must run aground on some island. That is to say, we're going to, the, the ship is going to crash. Told you that up front. But we're going to make it. This world is going to burn. Everything in it. There's nothing you can look around and see that's going to work out. This world is a mess, have you noticed? We're on a sinking ship. It's just a matter of time before it crashes. But I I don't really like Christians that spend all that time talking about, you know we're all going to die. Nobody wants to hear that. And you know we're going to suffer before we die. Those things might even be true, but wait a minute. How about keep your courage up, men and women? I have faith in God. It will happen just as he told me, for God's promises are sure. Oh, what an encouragement that must have been, but at the same time, an opportunity to exercise faith. I mean, God was going to spare their lives. They re- he reminded them that, that he had predicted that the voyage would surely end in disaster, but that they were going to be saved was the hope that God had given them just the night before. Oh, they were going to suffer the loss of their ship. They'd already lost their cargo. So much for that. This, this, whole, this whole ship uh, shipping incident is going to end in disaster, as Paul said. They had endangered everyone's lives by sailing for Rome this late in the year. But he promised them that everyone would survive the storm, though the ship would surely be destroyed. Now, we're told, and we really just find out sort of after the fact, that he had received a vision from an angel assuring him that he would stand trial before Caesar, because that's what God said. You see, Paul tells them, and this is so true, and I hope you can say the same. Paul said he belonged to God. Do you belong to God? He served God. Do you serve God? And that God was with him. Is God with you? Because he had been afraid, like all the rest of them, but the angel encouraged him to have courage in the storm. So I'm here to tell you, if you're afraid today, you can have courage in the storm. Because God's promises are sure. He was called by God to appear before Caesar in Rome. And when God says you'll get there, you'll get there. God had promised, graciously promised, that they would all survive the storm. But they would lose the ship. Well, the sailors feared that they would perish in the storm. And not everyone believes And a lot of people in this life, when you tell them the only way to salvation is Jesus, they look for another way. They look for a lifeboat, some other way to save themselves, and that will always end in disaster. Well, here's what happens, verses 27 through 32. And there are a lot of wonderful little applications here, but... On the 14th, 14 nights? I stop right there and I think, 14 nights of this? On the 14th night, we were still being driven across the Adriatic Sea when about midnight, the sailors sensed that they were approaching land. That that doesn't mean someone said, I sense land. No, they would do soundings. They would measure the, 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 the depth of the water and they sensed that there was land. So they took soundings and found that the water was 120 feet deep, which seems a little deep for me. But a short time later, they found soundings again and found it was 90 feet deep. Fearing that we would be dashed against the rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for daylight. Well, in an attempt to escape from the ship, the sailors let the lifeboat down into the sea, pretending that they were going to lower some anchors from the bow. And then Paul, so not only is he and I told you so, now he's a tattletale. 
Then Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay with the ship, you cannot be saved. So the soldiers cut the ropes that held the lifeboat and let it fall away. See, until you cut the lifeboat that you're putting your trust in, you'll never be saved. Until you stop trying to save yourself and look for some means to save yourself other than Jesus Christ, you are doomed. It's so important to know that. Well, they had been driven across the wind, across, uh, across the Adriatic Sea by the wind for the past two weeks, and now believing that they're finally approaching land, confirming that they're now sailing into shallower water, they drop four anchors to prevent them from being dashed against the rocks. They don't want the ship to be smashed. Paul has already told them, the ship is going to be destroyed. You will be saved. But the ship, trying to save the ship, could cost you your life. We've heard that expression, right? Go down with the ship. Please don't go down with the ship. Please. I watched a a war documentary recently. might have actually been a war movie. Uh, And there's this one scene where this Japanese carrier is about to sink. And with all the honor of, a, of an admiral, this Japanese officer decides, could have, could have got, you know, got off the boat and got onto a submarine, but decided to go down with the ship. What sense does that make? Oh, it might look good on film, but what sense does it make for you to go down with this sinking ship we call the world when you could be saved by trusting in God? You know, they dropped four anchors. I just want to give you a little, a little bit more take home here. Four anchors. You know, we have to drop anchor. We have to drop anchor in life if we're going to get through the storm. Dropping anchor, what does that mean? Well, I'm going to read something for you from Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 1 says, We must pay more careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away. So that we do not drift away. That's why you drop an anchor. And then goes on to say in chapter 6, verse 19 of that same book, book of Hebrews, we have this hope, that is our hope in Christ, as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. Have you dropped anchor? You really only need to drop one, but I'm going to use this for a minute to just give you something to think about. I think we have some anchors in this life that we need to drop. There's things we need to do. There's things we need to make sure are sure and secure and in place if we're going to get through the storm of this life, the storms of this life. The first is this, the hope, and they're all hopes, the hope of our salvation in Christ. Amen? Do you have hope in Christ's salvation? Have you put your hope in Jesus Christ? That's an anchor you need to drop today. It'll secure you in the storm. How about this hope? The hope of Christ's return to earth. Amen? Do you have that hope? He said he's coming again. Do you believe that? You know, I've been saying that my whole life in church since I was a little kid. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. If you went to a similar church, you've probably said it as well. Maybe even in another language, but it doesn't matter. It's still true. The hope of our salvation, the hope of Christ's return. And how about this? The hope of our resurrection in Christ. Next month we'll be celebrating Resurrection Sunday. The hope of our resurrection in Jesus Christ. The truth that we'll be raised to life. How about the hope of eternity with Christ? The hope of eternity. You have the hope of salvation, Christ's return, the resurrection, and eternity. Drop those anchors. Don't be drifting through life, through the storm. 
untethered to the truths that can hold you firm and fast. Well, they tried to escape the ship in the lifeboat. But Paul alerted Julius and the soldiers. They didn't believe that the Lord had spoken. They didn't believe what Paul had said. They were willing to abandon the ship and leave the passengers to die at sea. And that's why Paul says, if these men leave the ship, you will die. Soldiers are not sailors. Sailors are not soldiers. If the sailors left the ship, the ship would have crashed and they would have all died. Paul knew that. The soldiers released the lifeboat to prevent the sailors from escaping the ship. I'm sure that that was not a popular moment for the soldiers, but they had the swords. Well, we need to realize that God's way is the only way to be saved. Amen? We're always looking to put our hope and trust in something or someone else. There is a great temptation to believe that in our own strength we can somehow save ourselves. You cannot save yourself. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. That name is Jesus. You need to call to him. Drop those anchors this morning. This notion that you can save yourself is as deceptive as pretending to drop anchors from the bow. There is no other lifeboat that can save us from drowning other than Jesus Christ. So what does Paul do? Verses 33 through 38. We continue here, it says... Just as, or just before dawn, Paul urged them all to eat. Probably not what they were thinking. For the last 14 days, he said, you have been in constant suspense and have gone without food. You haven't eaten anything. Now I urge you to take some food. You, you need it to survive. Not one of you will lose a single hair from your head. After he said this, he took some bread and gave thanks to God in front of them all. Then he broke it and began to eat, and they were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. Altogether, there were 276 of us on board, Luke writes, and when they had eaten as much as they wanted, they lightened the ship by throwing the grain into the sea. This is it. These men have all decided that the only way they can be saved is to trust in God and the God of Paul. They've all finally come to the place where they put their trust in the God of Paul. So, when you call upon the name of the Lord, you're saved. And we're about to see, like it says, not a single hair of their head. Not a single hair of his head will be lost. Some of you guys are thinking, I need to get on that ship. But here's the truth. It's just an idiom that basically says, you're going to be okay. Here's the truth. They put their trust in the truth of God. They ate, they thanked God, they ate bread with, with Paul, and they were encouraged to trust God. There were sailors, soldiers, prisoners, passengers, 276 of them, and they threw away the grain now that they planned to abandon the ship. Everyone has accepted the truth that they're on a sinking ship and they need to put their hope in God. That's when you're in a place where you can be saved. And not until then. You see the metaphor. Well, the sailors decided to try and head for a bay with a sandy beach on a nearby island, as opposed to a rocky shore. Makes sense. That's actually good thinking. They know they're going to go run aground, so they might as well be in a place where they can survive. And we read in the final section here, verses 39 through 44, when daylight came, they did not recognize the land, but they saw a bay with a sandy beach where they decided to run the ship aground if they could. 
Cutting loose the anchors, they left them in the sea and at the same time untied the ropes that held the rudders and they hoisted the foresail to the wind and made for the beach. But the ship stuck in a sandbar and ran aground. The bow stuck fast and would not move and the stern was broken to pieces by the pounding of the surf. The soldiers planned to kill the prisoners to prevent any of them from swimming away and escaping, but the centurion wanted to spare Paul's life and kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and get to land, and the rest were to get there on planks or on pieces of the ship. And in this way, everyone reached land in safety. A harrowing adventure. To find this in a chapter in the book of Acts is is interesting, unanticipated to find something out of an adventure movie right in this precious book in God's word. They cut the anchors. And you know, there'll come a day when we do cut those anchors. There'll, there'll come a day when we realize it, we're done here. We can move on and experience. We'll be out of the storm. We'll experience God's goodness for eternity. But until then, those anchors hold us sure. They struck a sandbar. The ship was destroyed from the pounding of the surf and they were the soldiers. Why are they concerned? Well, the soldiers were concerned that their prisoners would escape. Why is that so important? Because Roman soldiers suffered the sentence of their prisoners if they escaped. So if you're guarding a, 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 an accused murderer or rapist or somebody that, that you know is going to be put to death if they're convicted and you lose them, they're no longer in your custody, guess what happens? You get their punishment. So they're thinking, well, if we kill them, we don't have to worry about that. These are hardened soldiers, remember. They would rather kill them than allow them to escape their custody. Well, Julius, of course, you'll remember, had befriended Paul and was determined to spare his life. Now, why was that? Because the relationship wasn't transactional. It was relational. It was based on more than just a transaction. He ordered the soldiers not to kill their prisoners. Ordered those prisoners that could swim to head for land and ordered the others to float to land on pieces of the broken ship. You see, if the ship didn't break up, there would have been nothing to hold on to, to float to land. God had the whole thing covered. I mean, they're not to roam yet, but I think by this point you could probably say, you know what, God's promises are sure. Everyone survived the storm and the shipwreck just as the Lord had promised. Brothers and sisters, we've seen a lot today. It's a lot of scripture we read through, but The gist of what I want you to take home as we close the service is this. You can trust God. In fact, you need to put your trust and your faith in God. If you haven't already, you're making a grave mistake. You don't want to be that person who's on that ship and and, and the storm comes and, and you say to yourself, why didn't we listen? Why didn't we hear the truth of God's word? Why did we reject? Why did we sail anyway? Why did we take those chances? But if you're in the midst of a storm and God is speaking to you and reaching out to you and telling you to put your trust in him, don't try to take another boat. Don't try to find another way out. God has allowed you graciously to be put in a situation where your only hope is him. But brothers and sisters, your hope in Christ is all you need. For the Lord's promises are sure. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you. We know you're a good and gracious God, and we understand that you have a plan for our lives. As we close our service, Lord, may you continue to reach into the hearts of those 
that don't know you. May you begin to do a work today that assures that each and every person that doesn't know you arrives safely on the shores of eternity for your glory, for their blessing. And according to our prayers, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.